This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Mann is an assistant professor at the Sage School of Philosophy at Cornell University. Before that, she was a junior fellow at Harvard Society of Fellows. She did her graduate work in philosophy at MIT. Kate Mann is a moral and feminist philosopher. She looks at the nature of moral thinking as opposed to offering prescriptive claims. She has written for the Huffington Post, the Boston Review, and Newsweek, among others. We began the interview talking about the impetus for Down Girl and if the book turned out like Kate Mann thought it would. Well, actually, it really didn't. It was supposed to be an op-ed. It was supposed to be a thousand-word op-ed, which kind of ballooned from there. What uh, happened was I was interested in the dialectic after the Isla Vista killings, which happened in May uh, twenty May twenty third two thousand fourteen, when Elliot Roger targeted a whole sorority house full of women at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he had uploaded this incredibly, to my mind, misogynistic rant on YouTube about wanting to uh, seek revenge on the quote-unquote hot blonde sluts who had refused to have sex with him. And then he um, enacted his plan to go uh, to the sorority house, gun in hand, intending to annihilate all of these women. And he wasn't let in, so he ended up uh, shooting three young women around the corner. Uh, Anyway, the details, um, which were horrifying aside, it seemed to me afterwards in the media that there was this incredible denialism about Again, what seemed to me clear and which um, seemed to many feminist commentators like Jessica Valenti and Laurie Penny and Rebecca Solnit to be clear, which was this was a a misogynistic act and an expression of a a very uh, vivid expression of something that often festers beneath the surface in America today. So... I wanted to just write a thousand word op-ed just using uh, some kind of feminist philosophy that I assumed would define the term misogyny in a way that allowed me to make my case that this was clearly an instance of it. And even though there's incredibly rich work in feminist philosophy that bears directly on um sort of all of the the dots that I had to join in order to come up with a an account of misogyny and a definition of misogyny, I actually didn't find any work in my academic field that was explicitly on how to think about misogyny. So that lack kind of drove me to start writing a, a longer paper and, yeah, it kind of grew from there. It's interesting because I think like on a very surface level, if I think about the word misogyny, 
it just makes me think about men who hate women. But it's so much deeper than that. And and you talk about that, that it's not just that. It's a whole patriarchal ideology that justifies and rationalizes the patriarchal social order, at least in, in our world and many, you know, European, Western world countries. So can you talk about what misogyny is to you and what you discovered about the de- just the definition itself? So I think one of the things that we have to be able to explain is why certain men would lash out violently and hatefully against women. And if you think about the nature of patriarchy, which you just rightly brought up as the first kind of thing we should be thinking of if we're thinking about misogyny and I think helpfully political terms and ideological terms, the first thing we should um, think about are patriarchal social roles that if everything is going smoothly and seamlessly, you know, if women are serving male interests, had Elliot Roger gotten what he wanted, the, the hot woman of his dreams who never challenged his will or questioned his um, desires, like what's to hate exactly? It just doesn't make psychological sense that misogyny would be this deep hatred of any and every woman, partly because women are so diverse and partly because if you think about even the least enlightened man in a patriarchal culture, um, you know, if, if everything is going to plan, um, you know, especially if he's, you know, um, het or so-called straight and in a sort of, um, relationship with a female subordinate, yeah, things will be superficially fine. But I think misogyny surfaces when either particular men or particular groups that represent patriarchal interests, like, say, you know, the, the GOP um, in the US, when there's any kind of rupture to what is expected and desired, and there's a sense of entitlement to on the part of women that's when misogyny manifests itself. So I think of it as this system of, if you like, law enforcement that polices and enforces a patriarchal order, especially when it's in danger of going away. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. One of the things you're saying in your book is that misogyny targets women selectively. You know, if you are a threat to the patriarchy, then, you know, someone like Hillary Clinton, then all of a sudden misogyny rears its head. And so there are these settings where all these men who might come out with misogynistic things, they also have mothers and sisters and and people women they love that they would say they they're not misogynistic but then you have a certain setting and then it all blows up i know that someone like hillary clinton is obvious and i'm happy to hear you talk about that but what are also some other settings besides political where it would rear its head yeah i think you've put your finger on something crucial which is the way misogyny from the perspective of a target or a victim as a woman well, you'll probably have to believe this, but it just leads, it, 
it's just a mind fuck. I can't think of a better term. I guess one formative experience for me was I was one of three girls in the first cohort of girls the year that a previously all boys school integrated. And that was when I was um, 16 and 17 for my final two years of high school. And for the first six months, it was actually kind of okay. I had friends and it didn't seem, I mean, there were unpleasant aspects to it, but I felt, yeah, I had enough people that I felt kind of protected. But (laughs) I made the mistake. This is such a a rookie mistake and such a typical 16-year-old mistake, I guess, you know, I'm not really a mistake, but I, I, um, I ended up starting to date this boy from another high school. Um, and he was kind of a, a cool kid and he was actually a sweetheart, but I'm sure he sort of read like an alpha to insecure boys who were kind of, um, I don't know, like it's not necessarily that they would have wanted to date me, but whatever it was exactly, I can't even quite reconstruct the thinking, but everything changed overnight. I mean, it went from having lots of friends to just Coventry. And yeah, I think that's what misogyny does. If you're not, if you're not giving in the right way to the right people, or you're perceived as having changed in some way, like, you know, in the case of Hillary Clinton, um, going from serving the public to seeking power, that sort of change in perception of what you have to offer or what you're trying to do can change how you're perceived and how much hostility there is to you. Yeah, pretty much overnight. And I find that really terrifying. Yeah. And that's something else that you that you touch on in the book is that, you know, misogyny can be this latent thing. So if you look at maybe the history in America where you have the 60s and feminism became popular and they did start to make real um, strides in in the work that they did and their own personal power. So that when, when misogyny becomes latent, women rise in power. But the more power they get um, and the, the, their rise Actually, you can then turn around and, and misogyny can get worse because women have have stood in their power. That's often how it works. And it's often it's not so much women's power. That's the problem, I think, is women's power that's turned against or at least doesn't serve patriarchal interests. So that's the other thing. The other defense that people give, especially powerful men will give to the charge that they're a misogynist is not only that they love their mother or whatever, but they appoint women to, you know, like serve them in fairly powerful positions. So Trump is a typical example of this. But what elicits misogyny typically isn't just power on its own. It's power that's challenging or thwarting or threatening or constitutes Um, some kind of competition or rivalry that's set up. So in a way, it's, it's when women's power is deployed against patriarchal interests that I think you tend to get these eruptions, as well as when women, um, withdraw a kind of feminine attentiveness and, 
um, forms of emotional, social, moral, and reproductive labor that are required from women, um, you know, especially less privileged women. I think there are these incredibly stringent requirements that you give, not ask or take, and that can have, um, you know, really powerful effects on women's ability to participate, say, in public life. Again, particularly for women who have more vulnerabilities in terms of intersecting social factors. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. You were just mentioning misogyny as it relates to Trump, and you didn't get that into it, but I just wanted to ask you about his brand of misogyny, because again, when you're talking about that women may not be a threat, if they're if they're holding up the patriarchal system, like you can see with some of the women around him, maybe Kellyanne Conway, who just was, you know, supportive of the things that he said, and they're not challenging his his view of how culture and structure should be, he will have women around him. But he has a different brand of misogyny. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that since um, we're living in those times. That's exactly right about him. And I think one of the things he illustrates for me is the distinction between misogyny and sexism. So I think of misogyny as sort of the, the law enforcement branch of patriarchy, as I mentioned, and sexism as, in a way, the the false and bogus theory behind patriarchal social structures. So I think of sexism as this ideology that justifies and rationalizes patriarchal social roles by saying things like women just aren't very good at being powerful in business or politics or, you know, men are just, you know, fantastic leaders and winners and whatever. And I think for Trump, you know, he's kind of the squeaky wheel on these questions. So first of all, I think if he was really skeptical of women's abilities, he probably would appoint fewer of them to high-powered positions. So that's evidence against his being particularly sexist. But also he's so insecure and defensive, rightly so, because he's so incompetent and ignorant and I could continue that sentence for a long time but you know he although he'll say very demeaning things about women who compete with him it comes from a place of insecurity and wishful thinking not this complacent sexist belief that he's really that much brighter than Hillary Clinton like I don't maybe he believes that but to me it has the flavor of like willful denial of um, reality. So to me, his misogyny is much more prominent where he'll smack down and threaten and menace women who challenge him, which again suggests that there's an anxiety there that, yeah, we can be so much better than his particular instantiation of submediocre white mandom. So how do you fit in what you've learned and what you've written about misogyny with 
the moment we're in in our culture where all of these sexual harassment charges and rape charges are coming to light. You know, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it has been in in Hollywood. But most of it, wherever it's been, has to do with women in the workplace. And I'm just wondering how you, I mean, most of this stuff hadn't come out um, when you wrote your book. What do you think of it? And how do you how do you talk about it? Yeah, I think finally, culturally, we're discovering that misogyny doesn't have to be subtle in order to go under the radar for a really long time, partly because its characteristic moves against women are so shaming. And I think shaming is silencing. Sometimes there are also other explicitly silencing moves like threatening and the sort of general cultural resistance to not only um, believing women but caring when misogynistic acts are committed against them. But, um, yeah, overall I think there has been a narrative on the left that, um, look, this is to oversimplify, but I think there has been a sense that amongst right-thinking people Misogyny is sort of a thing of the past and there are subtle things and implicit bias and we're all well-intentioned, but, um, you know, overall things are getting better, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's just bullshit. I think so much awful stuff happens, including coming directly from the actions of supposedly woke right-thinking men who are incredibly domineering, partly because they need to feel like they're in the right. So certain kinds of wokeness are appealing to them as like identities. But when they're challenged, they can be really dangerous and really aggressive. And that comes out in sexual ways, which we're seeing. And it comes out in a whole host of other ways that um, my hope is that the Me Too movement that I think is so valuable and that I think is so brilliant what Tarana Burke has done in founding that movement and also that particular coinage. But I think we need to expand beyond sex and actually observe, as Burke does, that other forms of humiliation and domineering power moves and a kind of extraction or takiness of feminine coded labor, um, you know, all of that is part of that dynamic as well. So I kind of, um, I find myself hankering for a, I don't know, hashtag that too, um, sort of addition to the current Me Too conversation because, yeah, it's definitely not just about sexual disempowerment and overpowering of women by men. I think it's also, yeah, more general and broader forms of humiliating, shaming, belittling, condescending, continuous with mansplaining and, yeah, moralizing, vilifying. I mean, I can go on and on, but that's why my book, um, why I ended up calling it Down Girl because – these dynamic sort of like moves that push women down when they approach the wrong place or 
threatened to invade male spaces or take up male roles or um, are somehow perceived as not doing their feminine coded duty. Like those moves are so, there are just so many of them. And together they make it really hard to move against them. So what do we do? I don't really have a good answer to that question, and I wish I did. Last year, I was in New York, and my editor had asked me, you know, very reasonably and, um, you know, characteristically uh, kindly uh, to, you know, see if I could, if possible, write a prescriptive conclusion to my book. I kind of panicked, so I decided that I would just sequester myself for a week, and I didn't leave my Airbnb once, and I just tried to think. The conclusion that I came to, which was very self-serving, was that there was something actually good and sort of, at least for me, a bit liberating about not having to write something hopeful at the end of my book and actually just being honest and saying this is a really hard problem And I'm more about diagnosis than upbeat solutions, both by temperament and because of the way this book kind of came to be. There's this moment in the conclusion where I write, so I give up. And it's kind of meant to be a play on words just because the conclusion is called The Giving She. Again, a play on the Shel Silverstein book because I think misogyny wants women to be like the giving tree and to say I give up on saying something hopeful that the reader wants to hear probably at the end of the book like that's for me personally progress and maybe modeling that you know it's a very um incomplete uh non-solution but it's like one one example of the sort of, I guess, liberation that I think awareness of these problems and their dynamics for women can achieve, where you no longer feel obliged to say, well, yeah, here's my hopeful message. It's like, nope, don't have one. We'll have to keep trying, obviously. I'm not fatalist about these things, but it's not my job as a writer to give the reader what they want at the end. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I picked this passage from a moral philosopher I really admire who is also a novelist I love, um, Iris Murdoch. And there is this example which she uses in this, um, I think probably her most famous work in philosophy, an essay called The Idea of Perfection from the um, collection of, of three essays called The Sovereignty of Good. And at that point in the essay, Murdoch has this kind of intense beginning where she is trying to identify a frustration she has with then contemporary 
um, moral philosophy um, of the of the 60s. And what she was frustrated by was the way in which we underestimate how um, the inner dimension of moral life, the kind of making of a moral effort to, um, well, you'll see, um, making certain kinds of moral effort that involve not inner transformation so much as inner work, that that is part of what um, is required of you, not just good acts and making the world a better place and um, promoting the you know general welfare. So Murdoch wants to sort of expand our picture of what it means to be a fallible but good person. So here's the example. A mother, whom I shall call M, feels hostility to her daughter-in-law, whom I shall call D. M finds D quite a good-hearted girl, but while not exactly common, yet certainly unpolished and lacking in dignity and refinement. D is inclined to be pert and familiar, insufficiently ceremonious, brusque, sometimes positively rude, always tiresomely juvenile. M does not like D's accent or the way D dresses. M feels that her son has married beneath him. Let us assume for the purposes of the example that the mother, who is a very correct person, behaves beautifully to the girl throughout, not allowing her real opinion to appear in any way. We might, we might underline this aspect of the example by supposing that the young couple have emigrated or that D is now dead. The point being to ensure that whatever is in question as happening happens entirely in M's mind. Thus much for M's first thoughts about D. Time passes and it could be that M settles down with a hardened sense of grievance and a fixed picture of D, imprisoned, if I may use a question-begging word, by the cliché, my poor son has married a silly, vulgar girl. However, the M of the example is an intelligent and well-intentioned person, capable of self-criticism, capable of giving careful and just attention to an object which confronts her. M tells herself, I am old-fashioned and conventional. I may be prejudiced and narrow-minded. I may be snobbish. I am certainly jealous. Let me look again. And then um, it, the example goes on to, to show ways in which M um, changes her view of D and, and ends up discovering that um, you know, actually what she's taken for vulgarity is a combination of M's own snobbishness and, um, you know, tacitly her classism and that D is actually, um, you know, kind of fun and open-hearted and alive, you know. But for now, <laughs> in the example to, like, hold fixed the idea that, M's behavior doesn't change like we imagine that D is like, you know, deceased. So it's this like both combination of philosophical method moves like, you know, holding fixed that the behavior can't change because D is absent or even dead, 
calling these characters M and D in this very like dry philosophical analytical style. But like the example is so rich and it so gets at something recognizable to me at least that I think we need to do all the time and I think is it particularly important to do in combating forms of social prejudice, misogyny included, to not think you're above having certain kinds of thoughts that are just a reflection of deeply unjust social forces that many, if not most of us, channel from time to time and being capable of thinking again. Let me look again. That's kind of for me, yeah, that for me is moral philosophy at its best. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I thought I thought I would just read the beginning of my introduction because, I mean, a lot of the book was hard to write, but this, I think this was the hardest bit. So it's called Eating Her Words. Women who are strangled rarely cooperate with the police. Often incorrectly called choking, non-fatal manual strangulation is inherently dangerous. It can lead to death hours, days, even weeks afterward, due to complications from the brain being deprived of oxygen. It also causes injuries to the throat that may not leave a mark. If you don't know how to examine a victim's throat, what to look for in her eyes, red spots called petechiae, and the right questions to ask, it may seem no harm has come of it. The matter will often go no further. She may not seek medical treatment. The incident will be shrouded in silence. Sometimes she won't wake up the next morning or some morning hence. Moreover, victims of a non-fatal attack of this kind have also been found to be some seven times more likely to become the victim of an attempted homicide by the same perpetrator. Yet many states in America do not have a specific statute making strangulation a crime, relegating it to a simple assault, typically a misdemeanor. Strangulation is a prevalent form of intimate partner violence in addition to sometimes taking place within other family relationships. It doesn't appear to be limited to certain geographical areas. Its existence tends to be confirmed wherever data are available. But for many countries, especially poorer ones, they have not been collected. Strangulation may be performed either manually, using bare hands, or with a ligature. For example, rope, belt, string, electric power cord, or similar. In a recent case reported in local news outlets in Florida, a metal leash was used to strangle a 75-year-old woman who was out walking her dog. The man who attacked her appears to have been a stranger, which is atypical. In a large majority of cases of strangulation, the victims are intimate female partners, although children and infants are also disproportionately vulnerable. And in the vast majority of cases, the perpetrators are men, according to meta-analyses. It, of course, doesn't follow that more than a small, perhaps tiny, percentage of men strangle. The distinction between almost only and nearly all is obvious, 
but can be obscured by generic claims such as men strangle. Another point to note, strangulation is torture. Researchers draw a comparison between strangulation and waterboarding, both in how it feels painful, terrifying, and its subsequent social meaning. It is characterized as a demonstration of authority and domination. As such, together with its gendered nature, it is a type of action paradigmatic of misogyny, according to the account of misogyny I develop in these pages. Also characteristic is the indifference or ignorance surrounding the practice, as well as the fact that many of its victims will minimize or may, as I'll go on to dis discuss shortly, be gaslit. Do you want to say anything about that? So I was strangled when I was five by a boy the same age, a classmate. And yeah, I think that was probably my earliest experience of, I mean, it was my earliest experience of just that like bizarre out of nowhere hostility where he wrapped a piece of yarn around my neck, um, purple yarn, hence the cover of my book. And it doesn't take very much strength to, and it doesn't take very much time either to cause someone to lose consciousness. Um, it takes less strength to strangle someone even just using bare hands um, than it takes to open a soda can. So it's this incredibly dangerous thing. And I mean, I don't really have much memory of what happened um, just that afterward the school was like well we have to understand little Ben's perspective um, <laughs> this is so funny I'd won the spelling bee and Ben had found that difficult to tolerate I had a really happy childhood and the contrast between the way things were at home and then going to school and just having a piece of yarn wrapped around my neck and pulled tight by a boy because I liked school and spelling. I mean, you know, it was just so, it, the contrast was so stark. Like that's the first age I remember starting to feel really afraid of a lot of things. Like that's the age at which I think probably non-accidentally I started to feel, yeah, like I could just die very, very easily. And I, I still feel that all the time. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Where do you write? So, two places. Um, a lot of the book I wrote on my phone, um, including that part, actually. And <laughs> I like to wake up... <laughs> this is going to sound like um, an ad for, um, yeah, for uh, Samsung Note phones. So I, I would grab my giant phone um, and just like type with my thumbs because it would slow me down. So I couldn't just like, if I was typing at a computer, I could go too fast and kind of go down a rabbit hole. And so, yeah, a lot of the book was written 
lying in bed on my phone, just like typing with my thumb. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I guess like the main thing is just like hanging out with my husband and, you know, watching like, you know, silly TV shows together and also playing with our animals. So we have a corgi called Ponko, who's just like this darling sweetheart. We love her so much and she's just a daily joy. And um, when for most of the book, while I was writing it, um, we had two sibling cats, um, litter mates, Amelia and Freddie. Freddie sadly died um, of congestive heart failure more or less as I was handing in the manuscript um, on July 4th, being like just petting um, these two cats and now comforting Amelia who really misses her brother. Yeah, it's funny. All the things I've described are all the things that I'm like somewhat critical of in my book of like these like caring and sort of um, nurturing sorts of activities. But I feel like because they're very much shared with my husband and also because he gave me so much support in writing this book. Yeah, it actually just feels like a really beautiful part of my life. And yeah, it makes all of the anxiety and sort of sometimes misery of writing. Yeah, it made it feel possible to keep going. Who do you show your work to first uh, to get feedback? So my husband on the one hand, and my editor um, on the other. Um, my editor, Peter, has been really crucial, actually, in getting me to, yeah, just feel comfortable not judged in showing him work, which he is so responsive and so sort of quick to read stuff that I give him and so it's really important that I can show him something stupid and where I've gone down some silly blind alley rabbit hole and yeah, he'll, he'll just say something like, yeah, I like it, which I know means like utter disaster <laughs> and try again. I mean, I wrote, I think 10 versions of this introduction, um, all completely different, all almost different topics. And I just knew I wasn't hitting it. And yeah, when I finally hit it, I can tell because I'll show it to my husband on the one hand and my editor on the other, and they'll both have the same reaction, which is, yeah, this is it. You've nailed it. How have you dealt with rejection? This is going to sound terrible, but I haven't had, I haven't had a huge amount of rejection in terms of public, so-called public philosophy. You know, I just got very lucky. Like I wrote my first piece that was published in the times and I you know I sent it to the editor and um yeah I was accepted and stunned I was really not expecting that um I've had a lot more rejection in philosophy um like academic journals in philosophy usually have rejection rates of at least for the one I was um briefly associate editor for 95 percent yeah, honestly, like I just, I find that culture of sort of um, pedophugging peer review and which often produces really distorted work that is very hard to read and very 
overly defensive. Like, I just don't like that model of scholarship. And I'm so much more of an essayist by temperament. Yeah, so I've been super happy since I started going more my own way, which is to write essays intended for a more general readership. Um, And yeah, like working with a, a sympathetic editor who kind of gets it and... I feel respected by that's just made a huge difference. And what is your favorite word? Thought about this and tried to think what other people would say it would be. I think maybe inchoate, both because I like the sound of it, but also it kind of captures for me what philosophy often involves trying to get past. It's not that the thought is necessarily stupid or wrong. It's just an inkling. It's this inchoate sense that something is not quite right in your own thinking or that you're making some kind of mistake morally and you just have this inchoate sense that there's more to be said, more to explore. Um, And sometimes that's just wrong. But, yeah, getting comfortable... um, with my own inchoate ideas and gradually trying to tease them out in writing and being okay with the fact that there would be many, many, many drafts. Um, Yeah, I guess for both sort of personal as well as aesthetic reasons, I think that's my favorite word at the moment. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Dialogue on Writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.